Welcome to the Protect the Asset podcast. It's been created for personal trainers who want to build a meaningful career that gives them enjoyment and financial stability without burning out. I'm excited to be launching this podcast and I'm looking forward to having some inspirational conversations with personal trainers, coaches, and other health and fitness experts. I want this podcast to be a safe space where coaches can share their career journey, both the highs and the lows. It's a space where passionate coaches can connect and learn from each other so we can build a meaningful career that aligns with our interests, strengths, and values. Whether you want to experience a deeper sense of meaning, learn how to be more productive, or attract more ideal clients, this podcast is for you. G'day, and welcome to episode one of the Protect the Asset podcast. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Matt Connolly about his career journey. Matt was working as a Special Forces Police Officer in central London when he decided to change careers and open a CrossFit gym. He left the police force and he followed his passion for all things health and fitness. After owning and managing the gym for a few years, Matt started training more and more clients online to a point where he was making more money online than he was from the gym. He moved his career online and he started running athlete workshops all around Europe. He was later hired by Opex Fitness as a head coach. Matt loves a challenge and he's definitely a passionate coach who will go the extra mile for his clients. However, his career caught up with him and Matt went through a transformative experience that made him question what he really wanted from his career. Matt is currently training clients online and he's working with online personal trainers as a career coach. He is a big believer in practicing what you preach. I really enjoyed this conversation with Matt as he has a wealth of career experience and knowledge to share when it comes to building a sustainable personal training career. So let's get stuck in and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Matt Conley. Matt, welcome to the show. I'm excited to talk to you about your health and fitness career um, and talk about coaching and hopefully much more. Um, to kick it off, I'm just curious to know a little bit more about what, what, what is your current role? Oh, yeah, good question. So thanks for having me, first and foremost. Um, so right now, I still coach online. I've been coaching online for probably close to the past nine, 10 years in some, some way or another, part-time at first and then full-time for kind of the past six, seven years. And then um, I also mentor coaches, so help coaches with the kind of business side of stuff and systems and those kind of things. Yeah, awesome, man. I was doing a little bit of a research on you and uh i hear that you were spending some time in china with some shaolin monks when did that happen? yeah yeah what yeah one of my first kind of exposures to fitness was through martial arts as a kid so from kind of the age of like the classic thing nine years old start doing karate did that until i was like 18 and then got to the point where i kind of wanted to explore different things and started to train in different martial arts and things and had the opportunity to go over and live and train at the Shaolin Temple for a period of time in, I don't even remember what year it was now, I think it's like 2000 and 2003 maybe, somewhere around there, so a long time ago now. It feels yep. very, very long time ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was that was a really kind of transformative experience for me because it was like my first uh, exposure to true what I would categorize as true mastery. So people that have dedicated their entire lives to the pursuit of a fairly singular goal yep. in terms of these guys that just live in the mountains, just beating the crap out of trees and, uh, and, and kind of mastering their, their art and everything that comes with it. It was, um, yeah, it was a great experience, but 
very, very arduous, let's say. It was because um, I was 18 or 19 at the time. Yep. And you're kind of up around 4.30 every morning to run, go on a long run, like either up the mountain or somewhere else. And then you're training probably somewhere between six and eight hours a day. And training is like training. Wow. Um, the only breaks that you have are for meals, really. Yep. Wow. Um, yeah, it's pretty full on. Yeah, but definitely. good good kind of experience for someone to have at that age, I think, in terms of um, valuing hard work and mastery and, and those kind of things. Yeah. How, did that, how did that come about? Was that through your school that you were training with or what made you decide to go to China? Yeah, so the place that I was training at, um, the monks go travel around and do this thing, or they used to, called the Shaolin Wheel of Life, which was like a stage tour. Um, so they'd go around and do all their feats of like snapping spears against their neck and doing two finger handstand push-ups and all that kind of stuff. And um, they were training in the place where I trained and they kind of said, hey, if you ever want to come, just just write a letter. So decided to write a letter and then didn't hear anything back for months. And then I remember um, this thing came through the post and it was just this big scroll like in written in Mandarin or in Chinese. Yep. And um, I thought, well, oh, okay, they, well, this must be it. So I went to the consulate in Manchester to kind of get my visa application and stuff and took this in and they were like, oh, you do know this is a letter from the abbot of the Shaolin Temple inviting you over to go and train. I was like, no, because I can't read it. <laughs> um, so yeah, then went over, trained there. Um, I was there for, I think about three or four months, but I went at the worst possible time because Henan province, where the Shaolin Temple is, they, they pretty much don't have spring or autumn. So it flips from summer pretty much overnight to winter. Um, which was a shock to the system because there's like ice on the inside of the windows in the room that I'm sleeping in. There's very like basically no heating, pretty yeah. rough and ready conditions. Um, but yeah, it was good. It was a really good experience. Yeah, yeah. And do you still do some martial arts now, or that's just in the past now? Yeah, jujitsu. So I've been on and off with Brazilian jujitsu for probably the past I don't know eight years. Actually, probably longer than that because I was doing it when I was in the police as well. So. Um, but I had to take some time out because I had some surgery like 18 months, two years ago, which put that on the back burner. So hopefully make a return at some point, but at the moment it's just not quite possible yet, but it will be. Yeah. yeah. Awesome, mate. Yeah. There's a lot um, you just said, I really want to unpack in this. Um, in this yeah. day, so we will definitely uh, touch on that. Um, you mentioned there being a police officer. Is that like a job that you, um, you know, dreamed about as a child or, you know, what, what took you down that, that line of work? Yeah, it was. It's an interesting thing to reflect on now, kind of being a little bit older and a bit. I don't know if I'm wiser, but absolutely older. Um, I think a lot of it stemmed from, if, as with a lot of people, because I joined the police when I was maybe 21, 21, 22, somewhere around that, and was in the police for seven and a bit years, and um, it, it wasn't necessarily something that I'd always thought that I wanted to do. But it is something that I think I had something of a natural aptitude towards in terms of um, just a bunch of kind of little weird things that I'm good at that carry across quite well into that that kind of role. Um, and it was one of those things that, it, again, it's like that defining time frame, like what you do in your kind of early 20s will to a large extent dictate the trajectory of the rest of your life i think and, and for me it was that i know for some people maybe they end up in the military or do various different things but for me my experience was being in the police and dealing with the dregs of society for a number of years 
which was um, challenging, but also fulfilling on, on various different levels. But I started out initially, I joined um, what's called the Ministry of Defense Police, which is quiet to say the least. It's like, there's not much happens. You basically stood around with a gun, um, not doing much. And after a couple of years of that, I got pretty frustrated with the lack of things that were happening. And so transferred to the Metropolitan Police down to London and where it was the exact opposite. So I started out working in Islington, which at, at the time was kind of the knife crime capital of London and um, has more mental health patients per capita than anywhere else in Britain. Yeah. So there was a lot of kind of challenging stuff going on there. And then after a couple of years of working on response there, I transferred and went into um, a specialist department, which is where I kind of worked until I left, which was way more fun, uh, but a lot more challenging in terms of the work-life balance component because you're on call, um, you've got quick changeovers between shifts. It's a bit more demanding physically, and that's kind of where my interest in strength and conditioning kind of continued from what I'd kind of been exposed to through like little bits of calisthenics and things through martial arts and then being at the Shaolin Temple because there's like acrobatic components and a lot of calisthenic components there. And then going into a job where I have certain fitness standards that have to be adhered to and certain things that I need to be able to do um, just based upon supporting my teammates. That was where I kind of got bitten by the bug really, as it relates to kind of fitness and, and strength and conditioning. Yeah, that's it, mate. Some a life and death uh, situations. I'm sure you want to make sure you're fit and strong in that role, especially yeah. in, in central London. <laughs> in that job. Yeah, man. And that's it. I think, um, for me, fitness is very, very contextual because people who have, have different people view things through their lens of their experience. So, so to me, fitness is important because I don't want to die. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you're going to train a little bit harder when you don't want to die than when you're competing for points on a board. Um, and I think unfortunately not, not rightly or wrongly, but I think a lot of the kind of figureheads in the fitness space, their only experience of fitness is for, for the sake of fitness mm. and not for something that's potentially deeper or, or more higher stakes. So a lot of the people that I work with now, for example, are tactical athletes. So whether they're like special forces guys or military guys or police. Yep. Um, and that's not through a deliberate kind of messaging or marketing push towards those people. Mm. For whatever reason, they're the people that just kind of gravitate towards me. Yeah, that's interesting that, that, that you've got that. Do you think that is though from that past experience that you've had as a police officer, and even though you're not calling out to these people to come as a client, like you've got a story there that people can relate to and probably very similar values of these yeah. tactical people. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to empathy and authority. So mm -hmm. I've got the authority in terms of I've been there and done it to some extent. Obviously, I'm not saying I was a Navy SEAL because I definitely wasn't, mm -hmm. but I've done a lot of things in my, in my policing career um, and also the empathy of I understand the toll that it takes both physically and mentally and the work-life balance components and the sacrifice and, and all the other things that go into it that I think um, it's harder to wrap your head around as somebody who potentially hasn't been exposed to those things. Yeah, for sure, mate, for sure. I'm sure your clients greatly appreciate that empathy that you can show towards them in that context. I'd love to hear more about how you train your clients, but we'll get to that you know, a little bit further down. What was it that made you like leave the police force? Why did you decide to give that career away? So I was, at the time I left, I was working for, I don't think it exists anymore. I'm pretty sure it got disbanded. Um, it's always getting disbanded and they just changed the name of the unit that I was in. So it's called the Territorial Support Group. So we were a pan-London unit based out of Paddington Green. And we would basically respond to anything that a local, so say there's something kicked off in Hackney, for example, 
you know, an area of London, people aren't familiar with London. Um, and the local policing units couldn't deal with it. They didn't have the resources to deal with it, or it was outside of scope for them to deal with. Then they would call us in as backup. So we were um, a pan-London unit. So we'd get called out to whatever was needed. And then at various other times, we were doing like proactive stuff, um, surveillance stuff, like all that kind of thing. So it was um, it was a real hodgepodge of early mornings to do raids. So we'd be going out and smashing people's doors in for like drugs warrants and arrest warrants and all that kind of stuff. And then we'd also be doing late night kind of counter-terrorism or anti-terrorism patrols around the West End and all those kind of things. So there was a real, it was great in terms of there was a bunch of variety, but the challenge that came with that was the the work-life balance was non-existent essentially. Mm. Um, it was, it was, Kind of a challenging time frame as well within the culture within the police because there'd just been a big review of paying conditions and pensions and our pay had been frozen for three years our pension all our pension terms and conditions had changed so morale is never high, high in the police particularly but morale was at an all-time low and i was like well i've been coaching people i'm really interested in training i want to pursue this i've been doing a ton of education around that i want to leave uh, and take a career break so I actually left the police on a, on a three-year career break because I took a three-year break because I knew that even if I went back after three years, I'd be no worse off in terms of career progression because my pay was frozen for three years anyway. Yep. So it was quite well-timed in that regard. Um, so I left. And um, it was also, I mean, there were other things in it as well. Myself and my wife were at the point of wanting to start a family. Mm. And I didn't want to be a, an absent dad. I didn't want to be working shifts and a zombie the rest of the time and looking back on it now i can see a lot easier the toll that shift work took on me yeah. um, but when you're in it you you're blind to it it's like if you're in a room that smells like crap after a while it doesn't smell like crap anymore because you just get used to it and that's yeah. kind of what shift work can be like so i would finish a set of night shifts and just be a zombie for four days i'd get sick on my rest days pretty much every time mm. and then recover just in time to go back to work and just this compounding effect over time just kind of ground, ground me down. Yeah. Um, and with starting a family being kind of something that we wanted to move towards, it was a really kind of, it was decision time really in terms of, is this the quality of life that I want when I've got a little one around and it wasn't. So I was very fortunate in that I was able to step away from my job and, um, and open a gym, open yeah. a CrossFit gym. Yeah, awesome, mate. It takes a lot of courage, I think, at that point. Like, you know, you've obviously got a lot of experience as a police officer and there was probably a lot of people that look up to you for you to be able to realize the impact it was having on your health and to be able to turn that around and actually have the courage to say, look, uh, I need to take a break from this. That must have took some energy. Yeah, well, at the time, I probably, I don't think I was even aware of the toll on my health. I think it, it was largely down to the family situation and being like, I don't want to be working shifts and, and those kind of things. And also dealing with the stuff that you're dealing with, because there's a compounding effect of being exposed to trauma like that with no, because it's, I've spoken to a bunch of my clients around this. A lot of the time when people are exposed to trauma in the military, you kind of, you've gone overseas, you're exposed to trauma. It's horrific and horrific things. And then you come back and, and it's somewhat easier I'm not saying it is easier, but for some people, it can be easier to kind of compartmentalize. Yeah. But for me and for anyone in a policing or like a frontline emergency services role, all the trauma that you experience is just like a, on a street that you live on. Yeah. Like with people that look like you, that sound like you, with, with children and, and all these kind of things. 
And it's a lot harder to compartmentalize that. And it's also the frequency, it's the cadence. Because in London, like a set of shifts, you're going from call to call to call to call to call. And for every, pretty much every call that you go to, that's going to be one of the worst things that they experience in their life. Yeah. And for you, it's just another day. Yeah. But you're doing that umpteen times per set of, per day, and then per set of shifts. It really kind of builds up. And um, I don't, I don't, that wasn't a consideration for me at the time because I was unconscious to it because it was all normalized. Um, but definitely stepping away was, was good for like physical health, for mental health, for just long-term. It was definitely the right decision. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if I'd say if it was courageous, I think it was stupid, <laughs> but, but the, it's one of those things where I knew that if I didn't take my opportunity, then that was it. I was, I would, I would kind of be stuck. And I looked at my peers and colleagues and people who'd been in longer than I had on people who did have children and a mortgage and all these kind of things. And they were just, they were handcuffed to the job because they couldn't leave because yep. the pension was tied up in it. Their salaries tied up in it. They had all these outgoings that they had to meet. Mm. And, um, yeah, a lot of people, in my experience, a lot of people stay in the police, not because they actually want to be there. It's because they feel trapped. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, what else can I do? How does this skill set? Like I'm an advanced driver, taser operator, firearms, like how, how what other job is that going to transfer to? <laughs> yeah. Where can that it's carry like, to? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, so it's looking at the other skills that policing gave me mm. and thinking about, okay, what, what other kind of skill sets do I have? Yeah. And what kind of superpowers did I get from that that helped me in, in what I do now? Yeah. Mate, it was funny that you uh, mentioned Islington and Hackney because the 10 years that I spent in London, um, nine of those 10 years were in Islington and Hackney. So when you say wandering those streets, I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's a bit safer now, but I'm sure at that time it was, uh, it was hell. Um, yeah. So that's when you decided to get into coaching. Had you previously had a coach before, like through the police force and stuff? Had you ever experienced coaching um, in terms of physical coach? My only experience of physical coaching was all through martial arts. Mm. So from the age of kind of seven, having a coach um, and then coaching through jujitsu when I was training, I used to train at um, Roger Gracie's place in, in Labrador Grove, trained there for a number of years. And then also um, I did have a coach. Who was it now? I don't know the guy's name. I worked with a guy remotely. This was like in the, in the way back in the early days of, of online coaching. Um, I don't even think he's involved in coaching anymore. Um, but yeah, I'd been in and around fitness and coaching, been through UK SCA, mm. British weightlifting, CrossFit, all that kind of stuff and worked with various people through that progress process. Yep. But I kind of jumped straight into the deep end and was like, you know what, I'll open a CrossFit gym. That'll be, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did, that come, was how really did that come about? <laughs> Where did that, that idea come from? Low barrier to entry. Mm. That was, that was it. It was like, what can I do? Um, I enjoy this. I've got authority in this. I've got experience of this. I, I'm good at helping people with it. I was coaching people that I worked with and, and, and that kind of stuff for a, for a while before I made the leap and, uh, made the leap and then kind of learn on the fly. Yeah. Um, which was good and bad. Mm. Um, but the biggest challenge for me with running the gym was the, the distribution between the technical component in terms of coaching, but then also the business component and, and trying to pursue both of those simultaneously and that kind of interplay between the two. 
yeah, it's a huge responsibility, isn't it? You've got to take on staff, you've got to do coaching and it's, and, and it's the whole business side as well. And I think, you know, there are a lot of coaches that go there from being a personal trainer or, you know, doing some workshops to then all of a sudden being a business owner and having to manage all that. How was that for you and how long did it take, you know, for you to get a grip of grip of that? Um, well, the first kind of four months, I because I, I knew in the back of my mind, I had this safety net of being on a career break, which meant it's basically a sabbatical, so it's unpaid leave. So at any point I could call up the police and be like, hey, I want to come back. And they would have to find me a job and I'd have to, and I'd be able to go back. Um, and that was a problem because it was subconsciously it was there. It was like, I don't need to make a success of this because I have this safety net. Um, and there's a, there's a saying of, if you don't, if you've got a plan B, it means you don't want plan A enough. Mm. And to a certain extent, I agree with that. And in that, in that case, it was true. So I kind of severed all ties officially handed in my resignation after about four or five months of being on my career break, I just said, hey, I'm not coming back. This is my official resignation, handed that in. And then then the business started to grow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I kind of, I, I found historically, I do best when, I've, my, when my back's against the wall. Hmm. Yeah, nice. So, um, so how, long did you, how long did you have the gym for? Ooh, it must have been like four years or so. Um, but it was, it was one of those things as with many people that go into opening any kind of gym, whether it's a CrossFit gym or individual design gym or PT studio, things like that. It's almost like this, um, I don't know, I don't know what I thought I was getting myself in for, but it's almost like this fairy tale thing of, oh, I'll be training all the time. People come in and train and then it will just be the dream. And, and it's just not that it's long days, really long days, long hours, um, a lot of unpaid, thankless work that nobody ever gets to see um being in a freezing cold gym at 5 a.m like every morning monday through friday not finishing work until like 8 30 9 p.m at night it's um it's arduous like it's it's, it's so i i found after a while it felt a bit like frying pan out of the frying pan of the police into the fire of gym ownership yeah, I was going to um, say, it doesn't sound like there was much difference between the two mate you're still working long hours still away from your family yeah man it was <laughs> It was very much that, and it was this constant feeling of like, okay, I need to do more, need to do more, need to do more, and kind of constantly doing that stuff, um, which I think in some ways served me, but then in other ways, it was just, it was not a good, not a good situation to be in. And I think I see it a lot in other gym owners that I talk to, because every now and again, I'll have a call with a gym owner or consult with them and things like that. And um the hardest, I think one of the hardest things in the world is to admit when you've done something wrong and just let it go. Mm. Um, and for me, the gym was that it was this, because what happened was as the gym grew, where we were based was near, um, it was in, it was in like on the, the border of Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire in the UK. And there was a big um, military base nearby where people would come from all over the world, well, all over the UK and Scotland and Ireland things to come and do um, language training. So it was typically like sneaky beaky, uh, for want of a better term, departments that would come there. They do language training and then they go off on various different missions and deployments and things like that. And um, what happened was there was this steady flow of people coming through the gym and something like 80% of the, the, the drop-ins that would come in and they'd train like three or four or five times. They'd say, hey, can you, I really enjoyed it. Would you be able to continue to write my program when I like go back to my unit or when I go overseas and things like that? And I built a decent 
chunk of remote clients whilst running the gym. Yeah. And it got to the point where the, the income from the remote clients matched the income of the gym. And I was like, well, why have, why have I got this gym? Yeah. Because I've got all these overheads. It's mm. not profitable. Mm. Um, it's being propped up by the online stuff. Yeah. So I just need to close the gym. And then fortuitous timing, um, there was a, there was a screw up with an electricity bill, which meant that the entire industrial estate that I live on, mm. all the electricity was going straight through my meter. So the electricity companies that came to me and said, Hey, you owe us 25 grand. I think it was 25 grand. It was an insane amount of money. And I was like, well, that's, that's just not going to happen. And, um, that was the perfect timing with the online stuff taking off and to close the gym down. So closed the gym down and went a hundred percent online, which again was, um, similar to when I left the police, it was like a leap of faith, but it was, I think one of the best skills that I've learned from being in the police, um, that does transfer into kind of entrepreneurship and things is my, my, my confidence and trust in myself to make things work. Hmm. So, so like when COVID happened, um, which we may talk about later on, I'm sure, um, thought the fitness industry was going to implode because hmm. you didn't know what was going to happen, but yeah. knew that I'd work it out. Um, and it, I, I think that that, um, ability to kind of in a policing sense, turn up to a call, you've got a little bit of intelligence and information and you just got to deal with whatever's there. Hmm. And there's no, there's like, you're the person that has to deal with it. Yep. And that pressure that's compact, like multiple times a day for years and years and years and years, you get really, really good at working that stuff out. Um, so when I, when I made that transition online, it was like, right, how am I going to do this? Mm. And then just kind of hit the ground running and, and made things work. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great, mate. It's interesting that, you know, you kicked that off so early because like we obviously talk about it um, or we could talk about COVID now, obviously the fitness industry has moved rapidly towards online at this stage. And like you say, bricks and mortar, is it really worth it these days to own a gym? But for you to have that happen, like what, how long ago was this? This was... 2014, somewhere, maybe 2014, somewhere around there. Yeah. So on, online coaching really was in its infancy. Yeah. There's very, very few people doing it. And I've been, I've been coaching people for a couple of years prior to that as well, remotely through people that had come in the gym and then moved away and all that kind of stuff. At that point, it was Google Sheets. Yeah. And emails. That was, there was no true coach, trainer, <laughs> yeah. none of that stuff existed. Yeah. Yeah, um, old school, old school way, mate. Everyone loves a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, incredible. So, I mean, to go from you know the police force and then to go to the gym and obviously be coaching people, but then even to take it online at that early stage of online training, like, did you believe in yourself in terms of having that ability to train clients? Because I think even even today there are coaches out there that still think you know online coaching is a joke. Like, how can you coach someone remotely? Like, what were your thoughts? What was going through your head at that time? Um, at that time, probably not a lot of thought, to be honest. It was I'd like I was pretty unconscious. Um, in hindsight, now in retrospect, I think the most of the people who who have um, beef or like issue with online coaching, like you can't teach technique, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's it's largely down to because they're they're taking what they know, their experience of coaching people in person and queuing people and things, and they're they're trying to paste that onto a completely different context. And it just doesn't work. You can't cue people online. You like it's it's a completely different approach to achieving the same outcome. Yeah. 
but the key is you can still achieve the same outcome. It just takes a different journey to get there. Mm. And I think that that um, with COVID and a lot of PTs and coaches and things moving online, um, that was one of the main roadblocks, I think, for a lot of people was they were trying to coach people in the same way as they would in person, but remotely. And that's like live Zoom classes and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of like when I went from the frying pan into the fire with policing into gym ownership in terms of lifestyle, when people make the shift to online, it's like online, you don't have the same kind of time constraints. It's not, it doesn't have to be a time for money. Like you're sat on Zoom for 60 minutes with someone and they pay you a certain fee. Yeah. But a lot of PTs that make the jump, they take that same constraint with them. Yep. Um, which isn't just not necessary. There's, there's other ways to do things. Yeah, 100%, mate. I think that's a, a good way to look at it in a sense of like giving yourself more time and also building a career that's scalable because what's the difference between being in a gym, selling your time for money or running these Zoom sessions? And uh, do clients really need it in that context? Mm-hmm. How important do you think it is for coaches to have that face-to-face experience before they go online? Or do you think that you know a coach these days, because it is a different skill set, um, could potentially just launch their career online from day dot um i yeah i think you need to have some experience of in person at the very least i think the um you need you need to be seeing different people moving and what you see online through a camera uh whether it's like a a recorded video or or live through through zoom or something like that it's very very different um i think that in coaching in person a lot for for the years it's not it's not um not a requirement necessarily to coach online but i think it will it'll make a better online coach um but it depends on the context and the kind of people you're working with and those kind of things because there's so many different demographics that you could work with should you choose to work online um but a lot of the time it's not necessarily uh it's the way that i think about it is it's having not a playbook but an awareness of Oh, I've seen this before, and this could be the this could be the cause of that thing. And that problem solving ability, I think, is really hard to get online. Um, of looking at movement and thinking, okay, how can we solve this? Because I I kind of look things as look at training and exercise selection and things like that. Of if this is the outcome we want to get, and this is the answer that we want from this person in terms of the movement, what's the right question to ask? Yep. So what's how can I pitch this at the right level in terms of exercise selection or in terms of intensity or, or whatever it is in terms of training variables? And that is very, very hard to, to learn online unless you're working with a bunch of people. And most people, the first start online, they're not they're just not going to be. Yeah. I think that's very sound advice, mate. I'd, I'd agree with you there that, you know, it's very important to spend that time as a coach, you know, gaining that experience face to face before you jump online and then like you say, potentially like the way you did and the way I did as well, um, you know, it was a hybrid method. You know, you were running the gym and still training people face-to-face and then building that online business beside that. Um, you know, I was the same with Momentum, running the gym and taking clients on board with that. You know, just then you mentioned a lot of obviously um, training terminology. Where do you gain? Where did you gain a lot of your knowledge from? Is that just self-learning or do you find that, you know, all the certifications and courses you did, when did you start to really get stuck into, you know, building this knowledge and growing your career this way? So from, from probably 2011 till now, so the past 11 years, 
the just continuous education the whole time. Um, one of one of the things that I don't put publicly is like a list of certifications and and things like that because I've never been asked for it. <laughs> firstly, but also I uh, at a certain point it becomes less about the letters after your name and more about how you actually apply it because I think there's. Uh, the only people, generally speaking, the only people who are interested in what certifications people have done are other coaches. Mm-hmm. And the only reason coaches kind of put letters after their name and stuff on their Instagram bio is like, it's just a, a dick measuring contest. It's like, I've got go. more letters after my go. name than you have. <laughs> yep. And it's like, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. What matters is, are you, do you have the skill set and the attributes to positively impact the people you work with and to better their lives? That's, mm. that's all that matters. You could be, brand new to coaching, been doing it for six months and you could transform someone's life. And as a consequence, impact the way that they eat and move and the way that they teach their children to do that and, and like have a massive ripple effect. But I think the, the coach education space is I have done an awful lot of education over the years, like everything from kind of the conventional program design stuff to like functional medicine stuff and all this kind of thing. And it always comes back to the basics and what I have found is most coach education systems are predatory in, mm-hmm. in nature. They, they, they market themselves from a place of making coaches feel inferior for not knowing what a certain phrase means or not knowing what a certain assessment is or um, kind of creating their own language around things. And it's, um, I don't think it really moves the kind of industry forward as a whole. I don't think it really benefits the end user. And I see it as this kind of within the fitness industry, there's, there's two industries. There's the, the companies and businesses that sell to, to the fitness professional. And then there's the fitness professional that helps the end user. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the stuff that goes from kind of coach education to the coach isn't necessarily in the best interests of the end user. There's, don't get me wrong. There's definitely exceptions to that in terms of different education companies and things. And, um, yeah, the, I think the biggest challenge around for most coaches in terms of education is being deliberate in where you spend your time and um, making sure you can actually implement the stuff that you learn. Because yeah. the amount of courses that I've done over the years and got to the end of it and thought, well, what, like, how am I actually going to implement this? Mm. So the past, probably the past two years, three years or something since leaving OPEX, that's been a big focus of mine is, okay, I've spent a long time accumulating all this knowledge what am I going to do with it? How am I going to apply it in a more meaningful way to create better outcomes for clients in terms of not only better client outcome, but also better client experience? Yeah. That's a great insight, Matt. Like what you just said there, I really like the part about saying that, you know, there's a lot of educators out there that it is predatory and it is playing on, you know, coaches' fear of them not being good enough. I think, you know, imposter syndrome is huge for that fear of being caught out as a fraud. So, we're very easily pulled into, I've got to get more certifications. I don't have enough knowledge. I don't have enough experience. I've got to learn more. I think that's a real common thing that I hear from a lot of personal trainers. What advice, you know, you gave some good advice there about, you know, really choosing your qualifications wisely, but is there any other advice you'd throw out there to, to coaches now who are on that journey of feeling like they don't know enough or not having enough experience? Um, lean into it. Like it's a superpower. Imposter syndrome is a superpower because no imposters get imposter syndrome. Mm. So the, the irony is if you feel imposter syndrome, you're not an imposter. It's a good thing. Yep. It's, it shows humility and it shows a willingness to learn. 
Um, every, every kind of person that I look up to in the fitness space and have learned from and things, one of the questions that I always ask them is what's something that you've recently changed your mind on that you previously held to be true. Hmm. And if they don't have an answer to that, it's run a mile. Yep. If someone's still teaching the same things that they were teaching 10, 15 years ago, that's, that's a huge red flag Yeah, because yep. it just shows a lack of willingness to kind of reassess and, and look at what's, what's changing and, and, and those kind of things. And I think, um, in terms of imposter syndrome, um, it, it never really goes away. I think you just come up with better strategies to handle it. Like I, I still have imposter syndrome. Um, and I think if, from my perspective, the re the, uh, when people don't have imposter syndrome, that to me just is like a, their ego's got too big and they've turned into a guru. Yeah. Yeah. I agree um, with you, mate. Um, you know, I still go through the imposter syndrome. I'm going through it now and you probably are too, like stepping into this career coaching role. Am I the person who can do this? And we do question it. I think, you know, we can look up to people and see these mentors and these people, you know, building their career and think that they've never had that feeling or they're, you know, they've got everything under control, but, uh, recognize that you know everyone experiences it and it is how you deal with it um i think that's a great great advice and also you know i, I think you're on the money there with saying that if you're not feeling imposter syndrome maybe you don't care enough and maybe you know that role is the role that you're in is not the right role for you yeah it's i don't i don't i think it could be that you don't care enough i think it could also just come down to being a little bit unconscious so if you're one of the i think one of the biggest challenges from an online coaching perspective is that coaches develop in a silo. Then they don't have a peer group. Um, or if they do have a peer group, they're all in the same echo chamber. So that then nobody's challenging each other's beliefs. Mm. Um, I, I personally thrive on challenge. That's why historically I've always sought to create challenge in the things that I do. Um, and I think, I think that unfortunately um, it's growth isn't comfortable. Like you need to be asked, well, why are you doing that? And then if you don't have a good answer, it's like, well, you better go away and think about it. But it, I don't think it has to be done in kind of a, like an accusatory sense, but I think critical thinking is one of the most essential traits of a coach, but unfortunately one of the most lacking because coach education, it's not in a coach education system's best interest to teach critical thinking because then people will be thinking, well, why are you, you've got a vested interest in this and start to actually be a little bit skeptical of the people that are telling them what to do. And when was the last time you actually coached anyone and like actually ask some deeper questions around that stuff. Um, I mean, one of the things for me that kind of transitioning a little bit more into mentorship of coaches is I will never stop coaching people because I have a real problem. And this is just me. I have a real problem learning something from somebody who hasn't done it or doesn't do it. So, and this stems from my time in martial arts and in police and things like that, where it's like, if you wouldn't do that thing, if you're not actively doing that thing, um, then it's not, it's not aligned. It's not authentic. Yeah. Um, yep. So it has to be, there has to be congruency there. Yeah. hundred percent, mate. A guy who likes a challenge. He's gone from martial arts to the police force, to jumping headfirst into owning a gym, to being an early adopter of online training. We can uh, definitely see that, see that in your career yeah. path there, mate. <laughs> Um, I want to get into the career coaching stuff, but before we sort of start to step into that, you know, you, you mentioned OPEX there and the time that you spent with OPEX. Can you touch on that a little bit more? How did that come about? What was your role at OPEX? Um, yeah, I'd like to hear a bit more. Yeah, so I, 2015 maybe, 2015, 16, somewhere around there, I was working online 
uh, with a bunch of online coaching clients and was traveling around Europe running athlete camps. So I would go to a venue, run a two-day athlete camp, coach people, and, and that was a great way, mechanism for me to build my online coaching um, and also build authority and relationships and all that kind of stuff. I still have conversations today with people who came to like an athlete camp of mine in 2015. It's bonkers, like seven years later. I'm one. Um, yeah, yeah. So was it 2018, 17? Uh, it, it probably would have been. Is it Mike Lee? Me and Mike Lee? Yeah, Mike Lee. I think Mike Lee was on that one as well. We did it down at the Three Aces gym there in London. And, um, yeah. Yeah, I think. I think it that was 2017, about, I think. Yeah, about then. 2017 was, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I was doing camps and things like that and coaching people remotely. And um, I'd been in touch with James Fitzgerald at OPEX and said, hey, I'm going to be running these camps. Would it be useful if I collected some data and I can feed back the data for you? And he said, yeah, that'd be great. So I sent him some data back and forth when I was running these events and things. And then 2015, 16, somewhere around that, he just uh, said, do you want to jump on a call? And then asked me if I wanted to work for OPEX as a, as a head coach. Um, and I was like, yeah. Um, so took took on that role and worked there for, I think, three and a half years in total, somewhere around there, um, and left at the end of, I want to say 2019, but I can't really remember. It, it was somewhere around there. Um, yeah, great experience. Got to travel a lot, work with a bunch of different people, surrounded by a bunch of really good coaches. Um delivered camps everywhere from like the Middle East to Shanghai to all over Europe and all that kind of stuff. It's a really good experience. Yeah. Awesome. How often were you traveling with Apex? Was that like monthly or was that weekly? Like, was um, that Not not that frequently, really. It was probably for camps, it would maybe be kind of three or four a year, but I also traveled an awful lot for education during that time as well. So I would be traveling across Europe for courses and things like that. I think I think when I went to New York for a course, that was after I was working at OPEX. That was just after. But um, yeah, a whole host of travel and, and things like that. But it was it's really good. I love traveling. I really enjoy it, especially traveling on my own. Traveling with a four-year-old is not so much fun. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I really enjoyed the travel component. But obviously, COVID's put a stop to all that for now. Yeah, exactly. That made exactly that. So at that time, you were you were running your online clients and then you were working for OPEX and running these workshops. Was there much more involved with OPEX that you were doing? Or uh, No, that was pretty much it. So it was largely a bunch of in-house education. So we'd have like case study calls and all that kind of stuff in-house each week. Um, and then the, the real appeal to me of, of working for OPEX was that I would be able to just focus on coaching. Yep. So I wouldn't have to do like client acquisition and all those kind of things. I could just focus on coaching and education. So over that kind of three and a half, four year period, I dread to think about how much I spent on continuing education <laughs> during that time frame. but it was a significant and not insignificant amount yep. um, and a lot of travel and things during that time. So it was great because I could just kind of get my head down and coach. Um, I, think, I think the highest I went in terms of client load was somewhere around 80 individual design clients. Wow, um, which was which is a, it sounds like a lot from the outside because it is a lot. It is a lot of people to to yeah. manage, um, but when I didn't necessarily have anything 
outside of coaching and education. They, they were the only things. I wasn't also trying to run a business and do client acquisition and all those other things. Yeah. So it was a great, a great situation in, in that regard. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting thing that you bring up. Like obviously the 80 clients seems like a lot, but obviously if you weren't having to worry about the marketing, the sales and everything else that ran around that, what do you think is like for you now, what's a comfortable number for your, your online clients, do you think? Yeah, so I cap my one-on-one clients at 25. Yep. Um, but I use all the same systems to coach 25 people that I used to use to coach 80. Yep. yep. So the, the time demand is, is relatively low. Um, the, the key is I think of it almost like a snakes and ladders or shoots and ladders in terms of client acquisition. So typically people run into a ceiling with their client load or they'll have a bunch of clients. So people get to like 20 clients and they get stuck there. And then a few clients will churn out and they're like, oh, I've dropped a bollock here. I need to readdress my systems. And then they'll install some upgrades and stuff. And then they go up to 25. And there's kind of this, and we used to see it in-house at OPEX as well. There was kind of this, people would grow to a certain level and then regress and then grow and regress, grow and regress. Um, and it's it's almost always down to just having things in place so that you can maintain the level of service with with the number of clients. That said, I think, um, I think it depends on the, the business model. And, and like what kind of coach you are like if you're if you offer kind of templated programs then it's going to be a much higher client ceiling if you're doing individual design then it's going to generally be a lower client ceiling but i think the client the number of clients is again it's like the dick measuring contest of uh mm. certifications on instagram it's like it's not a badge of honor how many clients you have no, um, no, it's not a representation of how much impact it arguably, I would say somebody who's got like 150, 170 clients is having way less impact yeah. as a whole than somebody who's got 25 clients and can dedicate all their time to them. Yeah. So it's a case of being clear in terms of what's aligned for you and what you want out of your business. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I think you, you said that earlier, you know, it's not the amount of certifications you have that doesn't necessarily make you a great coach. It's not measured by the number of clients you have. Really, it's about you know, most, the success you're having with your clients at the end of the day. Are you actually helping them reach their health and fitness goals? Yeah. Um, it's a hard stat to measure. So I think, you know, we compare ourselves on monetary value or we compare ourselves on, you know, these other easy stats to reflect on. But like you say, I don't think they're a good... Um, correlation to you know the quality of the coach um as you say oh yeah definitely i think i kind of equate income is like numbers on a weighing scale mm. so it's, it's when people are pursuing weight loss or fat loss like that kind of general population they they equate success with a reduction in the number on the scale and i think a lot of um fitness professionals equate success as more money in their bank account yep but it goes a lot deeper than that and I think I just think of it as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like once you've hit a certain revenue level and you've solved the things you want to solve financially, mm. then you just you then need to solve all the things that you can't solve with money. Yeah. And it's it's like for me, one of the reasons that I moved away from working with OPEX was um I wasn't there, there was a brand shift away from OPEX to a rebrand to a to a different company name, which has I think changed again now. Mm. Um but it was basically going after competitive crossfitters and that was the niche that they wanted to pursue ah. and of all the people i coached they were the people i enjoyed coaching the least yeah so I, I think about selecting your target market i use the three p's so you have to be passionate about helping them you have to be very very good at helping them solve the problem that they have yep. and it has to be profitable yeah and for that it was 
it was profitable and I was good at solving the problem, but the passion wasn't there. So it wasn't, I didn't want to coach competitive crossfitters. Most of my clients at that time were coaches. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of who I, who I enjoyed. And then that's kind of morphed more into, into the mentorship side of things. Yeah. When did you really start thinking about niching? Like when in your early days, obviously just having a CrossFit box is it's the local community. Like it's the demographic because you've got bricks and mortar. And then when you went online, it sounds like, you know, you had lots of special forces or it was that sort of demographic that was coming to you. But when did the niche thing sort of click for you? Do you think? Um, yeah, pretty much as soon as I went online, I realized, oh, I need to be specific about who I want to work with here. So outward, my kind of outbound marketing was was towards CrossFit Masters athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, this is pre-OPEX. This is when I first went online. Um, so at that, at that time, it was like 40 plus Masters athletes. And there was basically no one else doing things specifically tailored towards those people. So it was kind of a blue ocean and like client acquisition was relatively easy because once you, once you're in with it, with a certain group of competitive athletes, they go to a competition, they clean up. Yeah. Then everyone's like, Oh, who's coaching you? Oh, this guy, he only works with masters athletes. Like it was, it was largely based upon referral and recommendation yeah. at that point. Um, I still had kind of military clients and the same thing. It was all referral based. Mm. Um, and then over time it kind of grew a little bit broader and had, younger competitors and, and people in, in different realms and people with pain and all that kind of stuff. And then, um, but niching is one of those things that I think every, every, it won't be an unfamiliar term. Everyone's heard it, but it's yep. just the elephant in the room because it's one of those things kind of like when I left the police, it's like, it requires a leap of faith because people try and stay broad in the hope that they'll appeal to more people but it's the most foundational thing in your business is who do you actually want to talk to and what's the problem that you solve. Yeah. And that's like all the coaches that I've worked with um, through coaching and mentorship, which is probably in the hundreds, like very few of them initially had a clear idea of who they actually want to work with. Yeah. I experienced that too. A lot of things. And it's great advice. Um, I think, you know, a lot of coaches are coming from that, working at a physical gym and like mm. I said the demographic is well the people in the local area that can come and train yeah. with me it, it can be quite hard to niche in that situation so it's not a skill you know that we're taught um, or we even think about but then we jump on the online market and now you're just a small fish in a big sea and unless you niche you're really going to struggle to build a business that's gonna go anywhere yeah yeah definitely and I think it's a lot easier to build authority and empathy and kind of a become not become known but to to build a a sustainable business the more specific you go it's like if i want to replace my kitchen cabinets i'm not going to ask a mate for for a recommendation of an odd job guy Hmm. i'm going to ask my mate for a referral of somebody who's really really good at making kitchen cabinets yep and it's it becomes so much easier to refer when you're specific about who you do and do not work with and it's um I think it's it's a little bit of a limiting belief sometimes that coaches hold that if they go specific that they're automatically repelling everybody else. You're not necessarily. I, I don't proactively market to special forces and tactical athletes, but they still come to me. Started working with a guy recently who's in Australia. Um and yeah, it's it, it people will find you, but it's the difference between inbound marketing and outbound. Outbound is what you present to the world. 
inbound if someone comes to you and they're a good fit for your service and you know you can help them and and they're a good fit then there's no no harm in working with those people yeah yeah sound advice mate i think that's another thing that people sort of um get lost in isn't it if i niche i can only work this specific crowd but like niching is all yeah or i need to fire all my clients that don't fit that niche (laughs) let's not not do that Uh, Matt. just with an eye on the time there's a couple more things i really wanted to chat to you about today and you know you mentioned at the start that you know you ended up in hospital a couple of years ago and I, i read your um instagram post about that and you were sort of saying that you didn't realize the impact that you know your work had really had on your health until that point can you talk a little bit about that yeah it wasn't fun so i can't remember when it was now it's so where are we 2022 so it's two years ago end of 2019 so i think i left opex in the january and i was in hospital in december so i'd um towards the back end of working at opex i was getting like abdominal pain and things like that and it was always put down to like unexplained so i thought okay what could it be? All this kind of stuff went down different rabbit holes, all these tests and things like that. Never really looking at the obvious as always oh, it's stress. Like, am I just trying to do too much and and like just the accumulation of all this stress that I put on myself over the years? And it, and don't get me wrong, like some of it's external, but a lot of it is internal as well. Like carrying things from when I was in the police and, and all that kind of trauma that you experience. The whole um Bessel van der Kamp, I think his name is the role, the body keeps the score. Like that goes somewhere internally. So um, went through a period of time where I was getting like this excruciating abdominal pain to the point where I'd like pass out because of the pain. My wife's like ringing an ambulance to get taken to hospital, all this kind of stuff. And then eventually got referrals to get checked out. And then they found um, a, I remember the size of it. I think it was like 40 millimeter tumor inside my small intestine. And they were like, okay, well, we need to do a biopsy see if it's cancerous or not. So they did the biopsy. Biopsy was inconclusive and like, okay, we need to remove it. So they went in to remove it, um, doing a, a colonoscopy to remove it. We can't remove it, it's too big. And then, okay, so I need to go in for surgery and have what's called a bowel resection, which is basically where they take your small intestine, they chop a section out of it and then they reattach it, um, which is is done through keyhole, but it's pretty invasive and, and major surgery. And it turned out that the tumor was precancerous. So left to its own devices, it would have turned to cancer, um, which as a, well, at that time, 34, 33, 34 year old with a one year old daughter, it's a bit of a kick in the dick to, to kind of have that mortality confront you in that way. Um, so I had surgery and then basically for about three months, couldn't do an awful lot. Um, still coaching clients, still working online, which is I'm extremely grateful for. I didn't lose a single client during that time frame because of all the kind of systems and stuff that I got in place. Um, but it, it was also a real kind of wake up call in terms of what what do I actually want to do? Um, and it was it was around that time I'd been kind of dipping my toe in the water of of, of mentoring coaches and things. Um, but that was when I started doing it a little bit more because I don't want to see coaches get in the position that I was in, which is where you're kind of hustle, hustle, hustle for years and years and years. And then it bites you in the butt and there's, there's real world implications to that stuff. Um, and, and it's one of those things where you'd never really know what the cause was, if it was just genetic or if it was lifestyle or if it was stress or what it was, I think it's personally, I kind of think it's a combination of lifestyle in the police. So a bunch of shift work, a bunch of stress eating, 
terrible food just as quickly as possible whenever you can. Um, the compounding effect of that over time and then having a gym and the stress of that and then transitioning online and the stress of that. And it's um, it's one of those things, it was a transformative experience for me because it, it makes you confront what actually matters and what doesn't matter yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and kind of reassess and, and realign stuff. I appreciate you sharing that story, Matt. Like that's um that's a pretty scary story, and you know something that's um can happen to anyone. You know, like you say, it could be genes, but it could be lifestyle and stress factors. Um, yeah, man. And it's interesting how like you know we can push ourselves so hard with everything that we do, um, and it's not until maybe something like that actually happens to us that we stop and ask that question, like, what do I really want? Yeah, because yeah, I mean, when I was when I was like waiting to go in for surgery. I'm I'm a like worst case scenario kind of thinker. I fully anticipated that was it. That's that's me gone. So it was when I came out of surgery, it was like, oh great, relief. I'm like, I'm not dead. But I've got a catheter in and it flipping kills. Um but yeah, c- coming out of that, it was um like brain fog for months, like a long time. It took like three, four months mentally to kind of get back to being able to to focus on things. And I don't know if that was a combination of the anesthetic or if it was just the the trauma of like having stuff moved around internally and like impacting your enteric nervous system and that kind of stuff um but yeah it took took a while to get back but it's it's one of those experiences that in a weird way i'm grateful for because i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing now if it wasn't for that and i wouldn't be where i'm at now if it wasn't for that so as shitty as those kind of situations and and things like that are i'm a firm believer that there's always there's always some positive to be taken away from it um and it's also putting it into context in terms of things could always be worse there's always people out there that that are worse off and for me like i had experienced like my mum had cancer when i was growing up so my experience through her like compared to her experience is just it doesn't even compare um but it's it's one of those things that's made me a lot more empathetic towards people, especially around kind of lifestyle and, and those kind of things, people that are hard chargers and want to achieve outcomes and that kind of thing. And the importance of teaching them balance and being able to do that from a place of authority. It's like, hey, this happened to me. I don't want it to happen to you. Yeah. And it's um it's it's useful in that regard too. Yeah, super powerful story, mate. I love it. And it's you know, it's great that you've got that mentality. There's always a silver lining and you can turn something yeah. that could be so negative into such a positive and it's taken you forward there. You know, it sounds like that this is what's led into the uh, more of the career coaching, what you love doing. And it sounds like maybe the driver behind that is to is to help more coaches not um, deal with, have to deal with so much stress and find a little bit more balance. Can you talk a little bit about your career coaching program and, you know, the type of clients you're working with? Yeah, so I work um, only with online coaches, uh, nobody else or, or people who are in person and want to transition online um, sometimes, but but largely people who are already coaching clients online. And it's um, just building a sustainable business that, that supports the lifestyle that you want. I think so much of the fitness industry and business coaching and all this kind of stuff is done by people who firstly don't actually have a fitness business. Their only business is selling business coaching to to fitness professionals um and a lot of that information and content is regurgitated with no context to actual application of it Mm. so uh, all all i do basically is help people to stay clear of the roadblocks and the pitfalls that i've experienced along the way 
in growing two online coaching businesses and working for OPEX and traveling the world and all that kind of stuff. Cause I think there are a bunch of really common pitfalls that coaches fall into and, um, they're kind of easily avoided and, and you can avoid those costly, both in financial terms and time terms expense, like very expensive mistakes to make and painful things to learn. Yeah. Um, but my, my business is set up to support my lifestyle. I'm not chasing like seven figure fit pro guru status. It's just, I think, um, what the coach education space is very, very good at is equipping people with tools. Mm. What it's not so good at is helping them to organize and systemize those tools and show them how to turn those tools into a sustainable, ethical, fulfilling and profitable business. And that's kind of where I feel like my, my kind of niche is for coaches that are working online that want to do well in those regards. So they tick the boxes financially, they're fulfilled, they're working with people they like and it's sustainable and growing, then that's, I think that's all you can ask for. Yeah, I agree, mate. It's all about building that meaningful career and that sustainable career. I think, you know, like you said before, there's a lot of predators in the fitness industry. We talk about the certifications, but I think, you know, the, the career coaching. And, and it's one of, that way. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me kind of, I try and step back a little bit and not get involved in that stuff and just observe what happens. But you see a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the behaviors that trainers call out in their clients, they themselves replicate when it comes to their business. Hmm. So it's like the whole thing of, from a nutrition perspective, focusing on behaviors and calorie balance and that kind of stuff. So foundational things, but then when it comes to their business, they're focusing on the business equivalent of what supplement do I need to take? And yep. it's like, well, you don't even know who you want to work with yet. Let's, let's focus on that. Let's, let's get some steps in like, and it's, it is like one of the things I do is called foundations because it's foundational without that stuff. And, um, I think it's, it's partly human nature that we always, to some extent want to run before we can walk, but it's a, it's a costly mistake to make because it's a principle we can't avoid at some point. If you try and fast track things, you'll be forced to go back and focus on the basics. Yeah. Yeah. And we should learn from the training thing. I always like to use the training analogy. You know, we, we come back to our clients and how we have to help them change their behaviors and it's got to start from the foundations. And yet, like you say, yeah. in our careers, we're quick to jump the gun and try to, you know, use these fancy tools or have these fancy solutions that, um, you know, don't always work or they might work for a short period of time, but the longevity and, and the sustainability is just. Yeah. And it's, it, it's even, even the tools and things, a lot of them, especially in the business coaching space, they work if you're a business to business, mm. like venture, but business to consumer, it doesn't necessarily work in the same way. And I think that that, that for me is one of the reasons why I struggle to, to take advice on those things from somebody who doesn't actually coach people. Cause it's like, well, have you ever actually done this yourself and implemented this stuff, this strategy or whatever it is? And do you know that it works and what are the common pitfalls and how can you navigate, navigate those things? And mm. cause to me, that's the, in my mind, that's the difference between coaching and mentorship. So coaching, I would kind of summarize as helping someone to do something that I may or may not have done. I've never been a Navy SEAL. I've coached Navy SEALs. I've never been a Green Beret. I've coached Green Berets. I've never been in the SAS. I've coached people in the SAS. But I would never claim to mentor those people no. because mentorship to me is I've climbed that mountain multiple times and I'm going to show you the best journey up. The, the easiest way, the least resistance, I'm going to show you the path of the mountain, yep. but you, you have to have climbed the mountain yourself in order to do that. And I think that in the fitness space, there's a lot of people want to offer mentorship before they're necessarily ready to, I would say, 
Like you can only mentor in, uh, based upon your your scope of experience. I think that's great advice and that's great advice for clients looking for a coach and thinking about who that coach is and their experience. But also, like you say, coaches looking for a career coach and someone that's going to guide and support them in the growth of their own business or in their own journey, um, not someone that's going to dictate to them that this is the only way or this is how things oh, mate. Yeah. should be done. <laughs> I, I love that. I love it when those absolute statements, uh, the hallmark of unconsciousness, it's just, if you, if you think there's only one way to do something, then you haven't done it long enough. And I, I think that um, that's one of the frustrations I have with coach education is so much of it is is, is our way or the highway. This yeah. is, we own fitness and this is our way of doing it. You must do these nine fundamental movements or these certain patterns, or you must do this kind of energy systems training or that, or, and it's just nonsense. It's just yeah. people kind of buying into their own stuff a little bit too much. And I think that, one of the healthiest things for coaches is dialogue with people who are going to challenge their beliefs. Yep. Yeah, I agree, mate. And that's that's kind of the role of a mentor because you can't spell tormentor without mentor. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Mate, there's, there's one more question or one more thing I want to finish up on um, before I probably get you to talk a little bit more about your, um, your career coaching stuff. And it's come up a couple of times. You know, you sort of mentioned that when we become an online trainer, we are in that little shoebox. It's easy to be at home or sit at a coffee shop and not surround ourselves with other coaches. Um, and, you know, we can get stuck in that, okay, this is my belief system and we're not being challenged. What advice would you have for online coaches um, around, you know, having that exposure or being a part of that, um, that community somehow? Um, the best things that I've found is... Education can be great for that. So networking with other coaches through education, I appreciate with restrictions and stuff, it's not so much at the moment, but one of the things I loved about traveling to do different courses in different places was the people you get to meet at courses. So like I went to New York for a course a little while ago, met some great people there that I'm still in contact with and we bounce ideas back and forth. I went to a course, an FRC course years ago in Dublin um, and the owner of the gym, we worked together through mentorship earlier this year um, and the relationships that you build through those kind of things are invaluable. But if you, it, maybe you don't have the capacity or the, the ability to travel and do courses and all that kind of stuff, connect with other coaches through social media. It's like one of the best things about social media is actually being social on it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people just use it as a vehicle to kind of sell their wares and not so much as a vehicle to nurture relationships. Um, one of the things the, the best things I would say is try and start, create some kind of frequent call where you once a week meet up with a bunch of coaches and you just shoot the shit around a certain topic. Yeah. yeah. Even just being exposed to different belief systems. And, and don't get me wrong. I think that the only way to growth is through vulnerability. Hmm. Um, so you have to be willing to be vulnerable. And, and some people, for whatever reason, aren't, aren't necessarily comfortable doing that. Yeah. Um, but doing things like sharing your program design and saying like, hey, this is this client, this is what my thought process is, and here's the program, what do you guys see? Yeah. And just getting different input because the the only re real way to grow a kind of circle of, of uh, competence, uh, I can't remember the name of the guy who uses this model, it might be Warren Buffett, um, is to get outside input. It's like you can't read the label from inside the bottle. So you might be doing something completely dumb. 
Yeah. And you and you won't you won't know until <laughs> until you kind of show someone something they're like, well, have you ever thought about just doing it this way? And you'd be like, Oh, holy crap, why have I never thought about that? And yeah. those aha moments are just so valuable. But unfortunately, um I think there's not really many spaces for coaches to have that. And I, I don't think it needs to be it doesn't have to be paid, like just just collaborate with other coaches. But the biggest thing I, I see a lot of coaches try to do this. But they do it with other people who are in the same bias circle and echo chamber. So if you've all come through the same educational system mm. and you're all, it's just like, you just, there's no real growth happening there. It's just, you're all kind of self aggrandizing and nodding and agreeing with each other. Yeah. There needs to be a little bit of uncomfortable, uncomfortable kind of prodding to, mm. to, to force that growth. Yeah. Um, and I enjoy doing that because <laughs> it's like uh, just just asking the right questions. Like, oh, so why are you doing this? Yeah. Why are you doing that? Um, yeah, yeah, that's awesome, mate. I think that's really great advice. The collaboration stuff, the networking. It's important to keep all of that up, um, especially as we move more online. And the value in that, I think, you know, we've had information overload, and there's still so many coaches just sharing general health and fitness advice. But yeah, you know, moving forward, the next thing is people want humans. People want you to be authentic and they want to be able to see you know you're a coach that cares and you know these conversations you have and it could be you know um like you say just meeting with different people nutritionists other pts different sort of coaches that you can collaborate with a little bit and just to see that you're open for growth and you've got some good questions and information to share so i really think that's sound advice yeah i think i think as well just asking questions like if you if you want to ask someone something just ask them nine times out of ten they'll they'll help you yeah um my DMs are always open if coaches have got questions about stuff that I'm able to help them with. Um, and if I'm not, I'll just say, hey, I don't know, but I can point you the direction of someone who can help. And I think a willingness to, to say that you're not right or to refer out and all that kind of stuff comes from not being driven by your ego. It's yeah. like it's not, like me trying to bumble my way through analyzing some kind of stool sample from a client. Um, <laughs> even though I've done the courses and things like that, it's like, they're going to be so much better served by someone who does this full time. I'll just yep. refer out. Yep. And it's, it's letting go of that. And unfortunately, a lot of coaches want to be everything to everyone. Um, but you, you can't be. Yeah, that's it. It's a big mistake. And I think it's when you realize that uh, it gives you much more freedom and much more clarity around your own career, but it allows you to really step up and, and play the guide to someone and help people with that specific problem. So yeah, it's yeah. really good. You know, you mentioned that people can reach out, reach out to you on DMs. Like, where can people get in touch with you? Where can they find out more about your, you know, coaching and also your career coaching? Um, so integrated-performance.com is, is the website. Um, or you can find me on Instagram at integrated.performance. Um, they're the kind of two best places to reach me. Awesome. Cheers, Matt. I really appreciate your time today. It's been great to sort of sit down and talk to you about your career journey. And there's a lot of great insights in there. And um, yeah, I'm sure we can connect again in the future and have another conversation. But thanks for sure. your time today. No worries, man. Thanks a lot. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Protect the Asset a career coaching framework for personal trainers who want to have a meaningful career that gives them more enjoyment and financial stability without burning out. A lot of personal trainers are aimlessly wandering through each day with no clear sense of career direction or meaning. They're stuck trading time for money and they're often feeling crippled by imposter syndrome. It's overwhelming and exhausting. I get it. I've been working in the fitness industry since 2010 
and there needs to be a better way. Personal trainers deserve to have a meaningful career that aligns with their interests, strengths, and values. So I created Protect the Asset, a career coaching framework that teaches personal trainers how to create and grow their career while feeling excited, motivated, and confident about their future. Whether you want to experience a deeper sense of meaning, learn how to be more productive, or attract more ideal clients, this course is for you. Book a discovery call to find out more.